welcome to a third season of A Healthy Dose, a bi-weekly podcast hosted by Steve Krauss, healthcare partner at Bessemer Venture Partners, and Trevor Price, CEO of Oxygen Partners and general partner of Town Hall Ventures. The guys shoot the shit about healthcare, usually with leaders from the entrepreneurial, executive, investment, and policy political worlds. Interspersed with that, they rip each other about music, clothes, valuation, and investment track records. Everybody says, say something, say something, say something, say something, say something, say something. I don't want to get caught up in the rhythm of it, but I can't help myself. No, I can't help myself. No, no. You want to talk about Robbie first? <laughs> <laughs> Robbie socked up, everyone. Robbie Sockdev invests scaled capital. And as I said on the podcast, Trevor and I invest unscaled capital. But uh, He's so polite. Everything I brought up, he'd look at me and be like, yeah, that's like the macro point of view. <laughs> like, yeah, that's like, the early stage point of view. You can't go deep. Right. Like, I go deep Trevor, and write $400 Trevor, million dollar check. Trevor, the P and L. Unit economics Amazing. matter in my business. We talk about private equity and what makes it unique and how his perspective and his firm works. But he's not a traditional private equity guy. Right, I mean, he's doing company creation. Yes, he has a lens on unit economics, and you know, all the numbers have to work. But he's thinking about building real, you know, as he said, scaled businesses. Right, and God, his portfolio is pretty darn good. It's pretty stunning to think about where he is today. Having, you know, he was a banker. And a lot of people don't think about someone no. like yeah. Ravi's knowledge and understanding. He's not the boiler room banker. He is not yeah. a traditional banker, yeah. Yeah. and he's not a traditional. Like no, Clayton Dubly Rice right. investor. Yeah, right? not Can a- you imagine like your job is to deploy between two hundred and fifty and a billion dollars? Any single one of those goes wrong. Yeah, and you are in like yeah, that's not deep a good night's shit. sleep. Probably ends up looking worse than you and I do right now. <laughs> no chance. Um, no, but he like has so many interesting roadmaps, which you talk about for people thinking about the future of healthcare. And I took a bunch of notes because I think I can start companies. And I can solve yeah, them. There you go. There we go. Thanks, Robbie. And we probably should, as a separate bumper, wish our Listeners, happy holidays. Yes. Happy holidays. What are you doing for the holidays? Where are you going? You're probably going to some fancy Montana ski lodge or something like that? No, I'm here working until the 29th, and then we're going to Mexico for a week. 24-7, Town Hall Ventures, Oxion, through the 29th. And then Mexico, where you have a few margaritas. I will have any margaritas. Yeah. How about you? you? What's the Krauss family doing? Family, which I'm really excited about. My excited family, my dad, and then we're gonna go to Florida. Got it. I can't do I'm a New Englander, but I can't do the winters anymore. You're like a golf club guy, though. Like, you go golf. there, you play golf. Well, no, I, I, no, no, no. I, I sit with my kids at the pool and play in the pool. Got it. So no golf. We're going to do Happy that. Happy holidays, my you friend. You too. Always good to see you. 2019 was a fun year, because I get to be with you. Sometimes friends say something. If you say nothing, All right. Ravi Sokdev. Welcome. Thank you for having me. Yeah, second time. To a healthy dose. Yeah, second, second time, time participant. Long time listener. I think you, you, were on the, you, you did the Leering Conference where we did our first time on stage with a walk-in song. Wasn't that where we, we have a song? Yeah. Yeah, that's right. And that was the good old day. That, well, aren't we reminiscent of Neil Diamond? <laughs> yeah. That's those, right. Yeah, exactly. Yes, Robbie liked it. <laughs> Boom. <laughs> Robbie, are you a Justin Timberlake fan? Uh, Chris Stapleton, like, what's your taste in music, just to start out? I don't think I'm a Timberlake fan. Yeah, there's only one of us here. (laughs) (laughs) So we wanted to start and see if you would take us inside of what a place like Clayton Dublier Rice is like. Private equity. Yeah, like big storied 
private equity firms that I think people know the names, the TPGs and the KKRs and the Blackstones and the CDNRs and like, but no one really knows what it's like. He's not even dressed up in like cufflinks and a tie right. and stays. He's I'm like, probably, he's, got sure vast, in, he's got a BC bro vest. <laughs> yeah. Trevor's got well, one Well, he used to be a banker, so he gave up the cufflinks That's when he right. left the bank. That's, That's right. True. Look, I think the first thing to think about for Clayton Dubalier and Rice is that relative to lots of other private equity firms, we essentially founded the industry, right? So the firm was started in really? 1978, right? So we had our 40th anniversary. So private equity literally didn't exist before 1978. It didn't. It really? Yes. What happened in 78 that caused this industry to start? Back at that point, you know, KKR was just starting at the same time. Okay. Right? So obviously leverage is starting to come into the marketplace and there was an identification of undervalued opportunities and the ability to split businesses up and improve businesses. The firm got started with a financial professional and an operating professional. And that's really been... Original the, partners, two partners. Yep. And so that's been the DNA of the firm since then. We would attack everything with a finance person and an operating person. So at every one of our companies, as an example today, we have a, a chairman of the business who is a CEO. So Ron Williams, the former CEO of Aetna, is the chairman of the Nava Health business. Or You have some pretty legendary, I mean. Yeah, Jim McNerney's a member of the Jim firm. McNerney, Jack, Jack Welch, Welch. right? <laughs> and so again, that's a big part of the DNA of the firm, that there's not a bunch of financial folks that could be considered, you know, not that thoughtful at particular moments, running around the firm, defining the firm. The firm culturally is defined by a group of financial professionals and a group of operating and professionals. And when it comes to a deal, do both the financial person and the operating person have to agree on it? Or are the financial people, the investors, and they decide, and then you bring in the operating No, it's person? really interesting. So our investment committee is a hybrid of both financial folks and operating folks. So when you take a healthcare deal to Jim McNerney or, or someone like that, like, do they defer to your healthcare expertise and they're looking at the fundamentals of the deal? Like, how do you get an investment yeah. committee of diversified executives to understand the nuances of bundled payments and post-acute care like NavaHealth? It's a great question. You know, it's interesting. So for a long time, the firm's healthcare experience and what it did in healthcare was very much aligned with the legacy areas the firm focused on in other industries. So supply chain was a category that we did a lot in. And so the first deal that we ever did in healthcare at CDNR was uh, VWR. We then got into multi-site businesses. So we owned Envision, the physician services mm -hmm. business, but akin to running a multi-site business in another site. It's like segment. running a retail business. You got yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. exactly. Right? And so we were, I won't call us healthcare light. With reimbursement risk. Well, that was the first, you know, now we're all talking about reimbursement risk in that business. But if you think about it, up until what we're going through right now, nobody really thought about that business with a lot of reimbursement risk. Because it's fee-for-service. You got it. Yeah. Right? It's not a lot and, of reimbursement risk in fee for And service. not necessarily just a huge Medicare component in that business. Yeah. Right? right. A lot of That's commercial right. rate. That's what um, I was more thinking about. I joined in 2015, so okay. about five years ago. Okay. We were trying to go change what we go do in healthcare, so bundle payment, physician risk, technology-enabled services. And so the IP in the firm was not as strong <laughs> in those areas. And so it was a learning exercise for us to bring different types of healthcare deals forward. A couple of advantages. So you got a guy like Ron Williams in the firm. Ron's former CEO, CEO of Aetna. Yeah. Right? So you bring a physician risk deal or you bring a payer services business like NavaHealth, that's a Pretty huge advantage. Yep. But what's interesting, I think, which is a real advantage for us, is that sitting on that investment committee are not healthcare specific people. I think sometimes 
in the healthcare business, we can get enamored with the, like with the nuances of healthcare. Like, oh, you don't understand this because it's healthcare. They ask right? some obvious questions, but the, the important right. questions. And right. the response generally back to that person asking you an obvious question would be, hey, you don't understand. This is healthcare. Like, it's different here. Right. So what I've found is I've gained a tremendous amount from the fact that people have a very different yeah, background because they come to it with a set of business questions. So like when we looked at Nava Health, they said, well, isn't it an outsourced services business? So what happens upon renewal in that business? Like any other traditional outsourced services business, you have pricing pressure around renewal. Like why are they not taking it back internally? Right. Right? Yeah. yeah. Which they the would benchmark. do in any other, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah. CDNR today's, what's assets under management? So we're investing out of our 10th fund, it's a $10 billion fund. <laughs> a bit bigger than Town Hall. A little bit bigger. <laughs> Sub a couple hundred million. Is that right? Yeah. And, the, and just out of interest, what's the origin story of the LPs? Was it like a traditional LP that backed these two, this financier and this operator? A lot of the folks that would not have backed traditional private equity backed our fund. So Yale is a good example who doesn't back a lot of different funds, is an LP in our fund. So we've had the luxury of having a very sticky high-value LP base going. Kind yeah. of we're in political season, or soon to be, and we want to talk about how that impacts the healthcare marketplace. But the other target often is, you know, big, bad private equity, right? Yep. It comes around every political season. And I'm sure it'll, it's already around this time. Why is that? Do you think it's fair? I think everybody talks about it. I mean, I think it's a topic that has got a lot of visibility today. I think it's a relatively easy target to come after. It's pretty misunderstood as a category, I think. So I think when you're going through an environment like you're going through right now, where there's a pretty polarized political environment, really easy, big, misunderstood targets are pretty easy to get after. I think you, know, you probably hear this from other private equity firms or anybody in the asset class in some way, shape, or form, is you know, what are we doing to create better businesses? Mm -hmm. What are we doing to grow our employee base? What are we doing to go make a difference? And I think when we look across what we're doing, in every sector of what we're trying to do, everything as we do is about building a better business. I don't think anybody is talking about that in private equity, right? I mean, I think the legacy perspective, it's kind of where you started, like big, bad private equity. You know, why is it different? That's kind of the perspective, right? Which is- It's returns. You put, well, you put well, leverage on- Well, it's worse than returns. It's put, you put leverage on the business, you usually financially engineer a bunch of people out of jobs and the company becomes more efficient and profitable, but not necessarily better. Right, I think that's been the, not particularly educated perspective of the business, right? I mean, I think there are always stories like that that are out and about. Right, and, Toys R Us, blah, blah, yeah. blah, yeah. But when you really look at what private equity firms are doing today and the quality of the businesses that they're building, it's pretty unique. Like, let's take us, for example. You've got a business like NavaHealth that has, I think, more than tripled its employee base since our ownership. That was not a traditional. So again, yeah, but that I don't. I think we're I, unique, I but I also think a lot of people are. GA's doing this stuff. GA's yeah, doing. Yeah, yeah. Blackstone's doing it, right? Look at where Blackstone's just done. The Blackstone's raising a very significant growth equity fund. Sure. Right? I think where private equity is today is very just reflective of where the overall economy is, right? Which is you have to find these kinds of opportunities yeah. and go for it. Why? Because the debt businesses don't exist anymore. No, I think it's reflective of the overall economy. Like think about mature industries everywhere are under pressure. You know, I sit on the board of Steve Madden, a, a retailer, right? Like, if we don't grow our international business, our e-commerce business, and we keep trying to open new stores, like, we're not going to be in business. Got it. Right? And that's, I think, reflective of everything. When you took NavaHealth, going back to, like, combine the NavaHealth story and CDNR, when you take NavaHealth to the investment committee, 
just give us a sense, like how long are you working on a deal at a place like Navahealth? How much are you preceding the investment committee? When you go and present in front of the investment committee at a place like CDNR, and what was the initial capital deployment in the Navajo? We have a little bit north of $450 million. Yes. <laughs> so when you're sitting there, you've made the decision, you come to the moment of conviction that you want to deploy what is the first tranche of $450 million into a company. You're relatively new partner. Is that the second deal you did there? Uh, after what is that like? Look, I think the first thing to know about CDNR is we are generally not participating in kind of broad-based auctions. When we are thinking about an idea, thinking about a deal, thinking about a thesis, it generally matures over a relatively long period of time. You know, if you look at our firm, 60% of the deals that we have done as a firm have been in some form of partnership. You know, we really built our brand as a trusted partner to corporations. So we were carving out businesses from Ingersoll Rand and ITW and GE and and we partnered with lots of families, which is not reflective of a firm that is kind of responding to a banker and saying, okay, let's go buy a business. So the way that ties to Navahealth is we worked on that for 24 months, okay? It started there not only with the relationship I've had with the management team for a long time, but we as a firm have had a really long-term relationship with Cardinal Health. So I had a good relationship with them back to my J.P. Morgan days. We had sold them a business that they had done very, very well with, and we had looked at other M&A opportunities together. And so we have CEO relationships at a lot of these places. So we spent a lot of time with Cardinal around, hey, what are you gonna do with NavaHealth? Not, do you wanna sell us NavaHealth, but how do we go grow it, <laughs> right? You got capital you wanna deploy over here, you got businesses you're trying to figure out over here. We could be a good partner to you. So we looked at all kinds of different paths for how we might partner together with Cardinal around NavaHealth. Cardinal then got to a point where they made a decision that they wanted to go do something, and we were a logical party for that. But if you think about that, when the opportunity came to own it, we weren't going to the firm and explaining like what's post-acute, right. <laughs> what's risk, what's bundled payment. You'd been talking about it. We'd be talking about it. For both of you guys, what's the ratio of the NavaHealth investment period, I'm not saying they're all 24 months, but like how many of those opportunities or relationships do you pursue? What's the ratio that you end up investing in for both of you? We have roadmaps where we might spend two or three years trying to find an investment just because of the velocity of the venture market. I don't think I've ever spent, I mean, I guess I've, if you count passing on a series A and then seeing a series B. But what's the ratio? Are you- We're looking at, you know, 300 deals a year and doing two or three. And of the 300, how many do you get, you know, five, six, seven, eight meetings into it? Like Uh, investing substantial time. Probably for me and then Robbie, 20 to- So 300 to 20, 20 to two to three. Yeah. Ours is a much smaller and as a starting point, right? So we probably are only spending real time and on an annual basis, 25 opportunities, maybe. Yeah, it's very different business. Right? Across all of healthcare, right? So not, not just healthcare services, yeah. but pharma and pharma services, med device. We probably only have an intense committee process, sub 10 for sure, right? yeah. I think. And what I mean by a sub kind of intense committee process would be more than one introductory meeting, right? Because our investment committee process, it's really, really intense. They get involved early. When you go in front of your investment committee to pitch a deal, 
Are you got some nerves and a little anxiousness or are you pretty comfortable at this point in time there? What's great about our firm is it's a small group of people, mm -hmm. right? We're talking about what we're thinking about and doing. Probably not all that dissimilar from the way you walk around this and talk to your partners. Right. So it's not like this big formal like go behind the curtain kind of thing. It's not. A lot of firms are like that. Yeah. We're not. Got it. Right? So every Monday we get together as a group. We talk about our existing portfolio. We talk about new deals. So if we're working on something, people kind of know on a weekly basis, like how's it progressing, what's going on. And so when we come to in a committee process, people are familiar with the name, not in the weeds, but the process itself of why it's such a small number that we get intense about is that you could be putting together a 70 to 90 page deck, right? That that would go through industry structure, competitive landscape, unit economics. We haven't even talked about things like management team yet, growth strategy, mm -hmm. opportunity, risks, right? Yeah. And so because we are in our business, we generally look at ourselves as being in that asset for five to seven years. Long hope here. Right? And in the environment we've lived in, it's not like it's an enormously robust strategic buyer universe for lots of healthcare businesses. More and more of them you have to think about in the public markets, right? And so you're even talking about a longer hold period. So our decision-making process has to contemplate that. And then to your point, it's not like you're writing a $10 million check or yeah, a $15 what is million your, check. What type of capital do you try to get into it? You know, a $10 billion firm, I think the lowest that we would really like to write in this environment is 250, and we'll write up to a billion. Wow. Yeah. You're underwriting these at one and a half to two times returns? Is that kind of the general? So, you know, because we are not in other asset classes and we do everything out of one fund, our MO and thought process is to be alpha private equity folks. So we are not as much in the asset aggregation business as all of our peers. Yeah. <laughs> so people who invest with us want alpha return. So we're generally not underwriting to one and a half times. Got it. That's one of the challenges for us in this business today, is that- Where to deploy capital, you mean? At, at that kind of size in yeah. a competitive environment where people are willing yeah. to underwrite to much lower returns. My guess is you're pretty thesis driven. And so just out of curiosity, sort of you know, getting under the cloak of what you do, how many theses or roadmap, we call them roadmaps of Bessemer, how many active ones do you have going right now? Right now, we have probably four right four. now, right? Okay. But where we're, like really going to a level of depth. I think for us, we're thinking about two things. We're thinking about thesis and we're thinking about angle. Like because we don't participate in processes all that much, angle's a big deal what for us. What do you us. mean by angle here? Corporate carve out would be an angle, okay. right? Because- A unique opportunity where you, you guys- Where you could take structure into account, right? A lot of our deals are structured. So for our listeners, when you say structure, can you give some insight? Not necessarily that? just a straight equity investment. It might be some sort of preferred with a preferred return where we might own it you know, in a 51-49 deal with a partner, JV. Uh, JV structure. Or if we're gonna be in something where we think there's a process, can we put it together with something else? You're obviously incredibly knowledgeable about healthcare, and I think you would agree with all of us that the future of healthcare is value-based care. First of all, before I ask my question, do you agree <laughs> with that or no? I do agree with that. I think that when we say value-based care, I think it's too narrow, though, in terms of what I would define as mm -hmm kind of healthcare on a go forward basis. I, I think yeah. payment model change, broadly speaking, is a big part of healthcare. Yeah. So I'd put that in the value-based care segment. Fine. Yep. Okay, I think the consumer as a category is a very, very important dynamic. I think that the 
precision aspects of medicine around targeted populations yeah. that take advantage of the science. Yeah. Like, I think people have massively underestimated the magnitude of the innovation from a science perspective that's happened. So let's just stay on payment reform for yeah. a second, because here's the question that I have for someone like you. So if you have a five to seven year window and you're trying to deploy 250 to a billion dollars, yep. and you think the future of the next five to seven years is in payment reform, there are very, very few businesses that are large enough to be able to accommodate a 250 to a billion right. dollar equity right. or investment that play in value-based care. You yeah. happen to have gotten one of the great ones in Navahealth. There's only a couple of others. Well, plus, I think it's a really great question. Plus, fee for, you could invest in fee, you know, right. old school fee-for-service. Plus, fee the majority of the system is in fee-for-service. So it's not like there's a necessarily, it's a burgeoning market, yeah. but it's not a today market. I think, so. you, I mean, I think you're 100% right. I think it's reflective in what we have done. So if you think about it, Agilon. We, we, yeah, look at Agilon, right? So Agilon today is probably the largest multi-payer, multi-market, physician-centric risk business. We don't have a dollar of fee-for-service running through that platform, right? Not one. Not a dollar. Wow. Really? Right. We have multiple physician groups across the country today that are in global risk off of our platform. How did that business get started? We literally started the business de novo. Not all that different from what Welsh Carson did when they started NavaHealth yeah. or GA did when they started One Oncology, yeah. right? And reflective of what you just said, big category. We believe in it from a thesis perspective. What's missing? <laughs> the ability for us to find a kind of traditional way to write an equity check is not there. Mm -hmm. So we bought a couple of assets. We bought a technology asset okay. and we bought a Medicaid IPA, <laughs> which created cash flow. And we went out and recruited a management team. We struck an anchor partnership, probably not all that different from when you guys start an anchor partnership for a new client, yeah, yeah. right, to start a business. So let me just ask, so when you created the initial capitalization for Agilon, CDNR owns 100% of it? We and our management team. Got it. so you create a pool for the management team. Yeah, big pool for the management team. Yeah. Awesome opportunity, by the way. Amazing. Awesome opportunity for a management team relative to a venture deal. I mean, think about it. Like, you're getting percentage ownership on a much larger equity check, and you're getting scaled equity capital behind you. Like I think totally the opportunity right. relative to a lot of the venture and growth equity firms, like I look at us and I say, if I'm a business and I wanna go after a category at scale, like can somebody deliver me scaled growth capital? Yeah, you're also not getting Ron Kerbitz to go into a, be a CEO. Ron, former CEO of Fresenius North America, I think you're not getting Ron to go yeah. into a, a $10 million venture check, right? Yeah. I think the business for us, though, is interestingly enough, we're coming more in the direction of what growth equity venture folks do for exactly the reason you said. There are not traditional ways to write checks in categories we like, yeah. right? And so we could go buy a big fee-for-service business. We've decided not to go do that. We decided to invest. Just because the transition from fee-for-service to fee-for-value is so hard culturally. One, that. And second, we just worry about this idea we were talking about earlier on the pharmacy side of just over-earning, like mm -hmm. the underlying investment risks in the core business, let alone what you have to believe from a transition perspective, are not that attractive to us right now. Let me ask the next question then, the logical next question, and I've talked to Vorhoff about this with One Oncology and Calori, obviously you know well, guys who do this kind of de novo 
it's a venture capital company from its stage of maturity yep. and from its stage of kind of, at that point, pre-acquisition of revenue. Yep. Obviously, they have high risk, but you have private equity level capital in there. You have private equity level board maturity and sophistication. You have, you have better than private equity management teams. The returns must dwarf. And Agilon, if you were the ones who created that company and you own that type of equity at that valuation, the returns must be, why do more firms not do this? Just not in their constitution? So look, it's a very different risk return profile. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So while the return potential is clearly higher, the risk profile, like, you know, we're not in the business, unlike venture folks, of saying, hey, we're going to go write 15 of these and we'll take a zero on, you know, some portion of them. But they don't have portfolio diversification. We don't have, like, so that's the biggest challenge for us in the growth business is that we really need that bet to work. And by definition, you know, back to your point about value-based care, it's not like it's like taken off in a massive way, yeah. right? So like when we went and did Agilon, it wasn't very clear that you were necessarily gonna see the Medicare Advantage trends that you've seen or that you could get physicians to adopt risk. You know, there's still debate on that, right? And so I think the reason that you don't have more people doing it is one, they're not set up to you know, invest at that type of risk return dynamic. Second, the business is very much rewarded for asset aggregation and asset deployment. You can't do that over and over and over again, right? Like, like ask Dave or me, like it takes an enormous of amount of time. Well, but you look at FP, for example, you look at Ezra and Adam Bowler at Landmark. Yeah. Like, I don't know exactly, but I'll bet you Landmark when it plays through will be one of the best investment returns that Francisco Partners has ever sure. generated. Yep. Agilon, I would assume at their pace that it's going, will be a star in the CDNR portfolio, which says a lot, right? Because yep. CDR is not a new... So like, if you look at it... It is. I think, but you know, you look at all those like, situations though, what's, what's, unique, yeah, what's, what's unique about them? Yeah. I think what's unique about them is that there's... Not everybody can do it. <laughs> there is a real premium on the nature of the human capital. Like if you go look at what Adam did with FP, Adam was really unique, yeah. right? If you look at what Dave did with Nava Health or with One Oncology, right? Really unique. And so the nature of the professional in the business, especially in the larger firms for a long time, has really been geared around writing big checks. Yeah, it's asset aggregation. Right? It's, it, this is the it's point. It's very different than yeah. trying to go create something. Put another way, there's two ways to make you know, $15. There's write one check and spend a lot of time and make $15. There's write three checks that each make $5 each, right? And that's or the point. Or venture, write 10 checks of which one makes right. no, $12, there's a lot of different one models, makes $3, you know, and the rest also, of them shit the bed. Yeah. Do you think healthcare is... You know, you look at what Accretive did, Michael Klein's Accretive, not Accretive Health, but Accretive that started Accolade and Accretive Health. You look at what FP has done. You look at what one oncology now. Yep. now Healthcare is uniquely set up for this, right? Because you can structure large multi-year deals that bring working capital to the equation on these companies, right? I think the reason we were able to scale Agilon is because we had scaled capital. I think if you would have attacked the category with a little bit of capital, I don't think you would have done it. Yeah. Right. So like in our business, we flipped these physician groups to global risk day one. We took the downside you risk. You got to have the working capital. You right? got it. Right. right. right? 
And so I think where the actual opportunity is, is for more firms like us to do a little bit of what we're doing. Like, I think the question for a lot of us is, are you going to chase value-based care, precision medicine in a small way? Or can you chase it at some sort of scaled way? And can you find a way to deploy scaled capital against those things? And would that be good for the overall industry <laughs> in the sense that maybe some of these concepts will get there faster? On? Yeah, I agree. Because it's like this stuff, the, the pace of healthcare and the sales cycles and the regular, it just, it doesn't set itself up. I'm, you know, it does set itself up, well. though, with, if you go back to the Michael Klein point and look at what you guys have done, right? What does set itself up is because purchasing is concentrated among a certain subset of buyers, yeah. maybe a payer or a health system, your ability to like leverage that partnership structure to go do something yeah. is really, really Companies happy. can get big quick. Yeah. They can go from a concept to a growth equity size company relatively quickly. Yes. Faster than I think in, yeah. in other areas. Okay, can, we, can we touch on some investment themes that he's uh, interested yeah. in? I'm curious, we talked about payment reform. I think consumer, if I was listening, would be a theme for you. Or not? Um, I haven't figured out how to invest in it. You haven't figured out how to invest in it? Because there's not scaled assets. Not scaled assets and still a little bit unclear to me like how you get access to the consumer, like really get access to the consumer. I'm trying to find a, a great economic model for the consumer. We just carved out a business out of whole logic on the medical device side. Mm -hmm. We just bought a business called SinoShare. No, I know SinoShare, yeah, yeah, of course. Which is an aesthetics business, yeah. right? So the surgery, you yeah, know, yeah, getting at the consumer theme, yeah. right? But so, that's one where the consumer pays a lot out of pocket. You they're, got it. they're an active participant. Yeah. Right. So a business I've talked to Trevor about this. A business I love on the consumer side is health equity. I've loved it forever. Yeah. FSA, right? HSA, yeah. But it's an unbelievable consumer business model because you actually don't have to go right. sell the consumer and right. have the consumer acquisition. It's through cost. the benefit cycle you of the got enterprise. It. So payment reform I like. I'm enamored with the idea I was talking about before around what the innovation the science innovation is gonna create in terms of opportunity, right? So the service companies that get created to support things like gene therapy, right? Mm -hmm. it's, I, th I think it's gonna create a whole class of companies that are different, right? And I think that'll be sustainable over a long period of time. Mm -hmm. I think the value-based care theme has yet to fully, well, it clearly hasn't penetrated fully but there are clear categories of opportunity within it that are interesting. So I'm very enamored with the idea of pharmacy and value. Right now, despite the size of the pie, it is an incredibly fee-for-service driven business that everybody in the system is aligned around fee-for-service. And you know, I look at businesses like Agilon where we take physician risk and I just look at the massive amount of Part B drug spending, <laughs> Part D drug spending, the missed opportunities on medication adherence, the missed opportunities on drug dosing, like somebody's got to figure out <laughs> how to get at that. I still think there's opportunity around the healthcare supply chain, right? I think there are categories that have just been unmanaged within the overall healthcare supply chain that nobody has gotten after. People have linked Medicare Advantage together with payment reform. We're talking about really two different things. Medicare Advantage accelerated payment reform because of the nature of the model, but there's a huge opportunity still around, like, I think the world's just getting more and more specialized, <laughs> like around continued to specialize around populations, right? Landmark did a great job of that. So I still think there's opportunity there. Yeah. You know, the other big theme that it's not a category theme, but I think you talked about this one time in the past. It's a management idea, which is 
The dearth of talent in healthcare is like no other industry. Like it's incredibly hard to really recruit great talent, I think, still to the healthcare business. And so, you know, we look at like a Nava Health and we look at a Clay and a Tony, and we would say to ourselves, like, how do you not go figure out how to do more behind that platform? Right. And so I think for us, another angle that we have to keep thinking about is not how do we go buy Nava Health and sell Nava Health, but how do we give those guys an Back opportunity a management to team that, yeah. keep going? If I'm not mistaken, you sold Vanguard to Tenet, you did the Trizetto deal, you took SCA public. I mean, you have a sophisticated view on the M&A as market a as a banker at JP yep. Morgan. End of 2019, for the most part, do you see capital being much harder to come by for executives and for companies and private equity firms and venture firms starting to control the valuations a little bit more? What do you think is going to happen? What's your sense of what's happened recently in the IPO market, how it plays forward? M&A market? I think the IPO market is the one that's most interesting and I have the most question marks about at this point. I don't think a lot of us saw the pain and suffering that was going to come for a lot of companies in the public markets. Um, And so I think what that market will look like as a funding source for businesses going forward, I think is an open question that's going to be impactful for a lot of businesses. Yeah. Right? By the way, when there's a lot of capital out in the market, private capital, and you see your peers suffer pain, guess what you want to do as an entrepreneur? Especially when you can take secondary, which is happening, you want to stay private longer. Why would you suffer the pain, right? Yeah. And yeah. so I think that for that group of companies that were going to go public or may go public, I do think that the pain in the public markets is going to bring down both private market valuations and public market Mm -hmm. valuations. I think in some way, shape, or form, that will be reflected in these businesses' valuation. The question will be over what time frame. Yeah, right. Because I don't know that 2020, because of the election, regardless of whether you had a really strong IPO market for healthcare companies, I still think that creates variability. That doesn't mean that there's going to be a really robust public alternative there in 20. I look at it and I say, a lot of these businesses have been built with the idea that the capital markets would be there to continue to that's fund right. those businesses, yeah. right? Yeah, and so true. you could think big and you could think really long-term, which is what has happened in lots of other industries. So, you know, a lot of the MA plans that got funded, right? They got funded with big capital with the idea that you could think really, really long-term. Yep. I'm not sure that that market is closed, but the universe of people who want to do that has clearly gotten narrow. Are you betting against growth and sustainability of MA? No, no, I'm not. And so do you think value-based care is a partisan or bipartisan agenda? Bipartisan. Bipartisan. Yeah. So you have an aging population. You have, I think, pretty good both economic and clinical outcomes coming out of MA in particular. You only have about 30, 35% penetration of MA in this market. You have an expansion of value-based components in traditional right. Medicare. Trevor, fuck, Trevor's, Trevor's no, no, giving no. a town hall pitch no, no, right no. now. No, no, <laughs> fuck Medicare for all. I'm not talking about Medicare for all. I'm just talking about like, if you're making a long-term bet. Yeah, but the things that you just, like, just to push on that, yeah. the things you just commented on are all macro. There's nothing like, that's a purely macro-based theme. You haven't talked at all about unit economics. Right customer acquisition cost, competitive landscape, okay? So let's take the MA plans as an example, the new MA plans. All those macro themes that you just talked about, they're gonna benefit all those businesses. 
but the unit economics. You know, yeah. Those businesses, I mean, they're being valued at like $50,000 a life. And, and right. I think MA right. on a public market standpoint is like $10,000 a life. Yeah. So yeah. like the, the valuations make no sense. Right. I'm still saying like if you are a smart investor and you can back a strong management team, these are great themes. Great themes. Right. And they're not going away. But the right? difference between his stage and our stage is we can take those bets, right? Because you might get some wrong because the unit economics won't work out. The right. competition. We, that's exactly. He's got to have both. But what the well, Yeah, because he's but, putting $400 million. But the, the opportunity for guys like us is that if the environment comes back to us a little right. bit from You'll a value perspective, yeah, yeah. and I really want to build my business. Like an entrepreneur comes to me and says, hey, Ravi, I want to build my business for the long term. And the environment comes back to us a little bit. And I can do the work that I would do in a traditional massive buyout diligence on unit economics. Like I can go make that investment. But that's why I said you're going to feast. You're going to be able to get these assets at valuations are going to feel a lot more reasonable. I think the reasonable. question for us, man, is still... It's where you went before a little bit is the supply demand imbalance between assets and capital still right. like that's the key question for me still. But if you take away the public crossover and the public investor for a while, right, then, yeah, it might create some opportunity. And do you on the M&A side, right, we've talked a little yeah. bit about this, like Optum was everyone's favorite acquirer for a long time. There's a lot more options now, right? I mean, there's a lot more options in that space. If Back to your macro point, like you were making on the MA market or on value based care. The macro point is that over a long period of time, the anthems and the signas and folks like that have to diversify, yeah. right? And they have an enormous amount of cash flow and they will do that. They have historically been very hot and cold <laughs> in terms of when they're in the M&A market and when they're not. Optum, to your point, has been pretty consistent around that. When we look at assets right now in healthcare, yeah. we don't wake up and say, man, it's a really, really robust strategic buyer universe. Like, I think the thing that has really happened, if you look at it, is the sheer number of buyers has contracted. I agree with right? that. Like, if you go look at the public healthcare universe, there's no pure play specialty pharmacy anymore. There's no pure play PBM mm, yeah. anymore. And so just by sheer numbers, we've taken buyers out. Like, there was a period when I was selling businesses, you would say, Okay, I'm gonna call Medco. I'm gonna call Express Scripts. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Now you gotta sell a health plan on right. top of that. Right. And then you've got the channel conflict issues now. Right? So the thing that we've all done is we've all built businesses on the back of big relationships with particular customers, right? In healthcare. That creates some issues too, right? right? A lot of the MA that people have done, especially for these businesses that are earlier on in their life cycle, hasn't really worked. Management teams have left, founders have left, they've floundered, right? They haven't really grown them, they haven't really made much. Now, people have short memories, so I don't mean to be super negative, but I think the world is there for the high quality assets, like no question about it. But I think IPO or bust, baby. <laughs> <laughs> What's your view of healthcare in 2021? Post-election. I think I sign up for what Trevor was saying from a macro perspective. I think that- Stays the same. I think the, the structural things that are there that require like change, meaning that will create opportunity, are significant. Like, there's no slowdown in the senior population. There's no slowdown in the need to service the Medicaid market. There's no slowdown in the need to get to value. Why does value-based care fail if it fails? The defensive reasons for people to do it get weaker, right? Meaning, What's a defensive reason now? 
that I'm a loser in my market, i.e., like I have to do something different. You know, if you look at it for health systems in lots of markets that have consolidated, maybe they don't need to do it. So it's affecting their unit economics, to your point, because that's how management teams think. Nobody's is, is doing that it coming, Is that yet. coming from the regulatory environment, i.e. you can make more money, or is it coming from consumers actually choosing systems that do value-based care? Like, are you losing market share? Well, I just think the sheer math of what, the way that the consolidation has happened in lots of markets across the country, there are not a lot of alternatives, right? We have value-based care, but then you look at supply-demand dynamics in a local market in terms of the breadth of people who need service relative to the shortages out there. How does that fit with value-based care? Meaning the health system can say, you know what, screw you, I'm doing fee-for-service. You got it. And the government, which has been a real driver of this, has yet to show great consistency in their ability to drive these programs forward in a way that work for providers, I think. I agree. All right. I could I could talk for hours. Yeah, this is. All, I've yeah. already got like eight different roadmaps. Yeah. I gotta go pursue to sell companies to him, but yeah. he won't buy them. He's gotta go write four hundred million dollar right, checks, right, and you and like I a... have to figure out how to keep our businesses from going out of business. <laughs> <laughs> it's <not> unscaled capital. <laughs> Trevor specializes in unscaled <laughs> capital. Uh, for those listeners, follow Ravi's career, not Stephen. <laughs> Thanks a lot for Thanks coming. Thanks for having me. It's Thanks seriously so much fun hanging out with you. Yeah. And uh, for those people listening, like it's really, really special to get Ravi's perspective on this. Totally it's just agreed. an unbelievable insight into the market. So thanks, thanks very much. It was a lot of fun. Thanks for listening to A Healthy Dose. Please subscribe through iTunes. And if you have any suggestions for topics or guests, please tweet us at A Healthy Dose Pod. Call